And now Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 27 to 32. Luke 5, 27 to 32. <clears throat> Let me begin by asking you a question. Who is the worst of sinners? There's a question for you. Who's the worst of sinners? Maybe it's, maybe it's one person that comes to your mind. Maybe it's a, a group of people. But these are the people we despise. It's uh, the person we deem to be unsavable. I mean, technically and theologically, we would say there's no such person who is unsavable. But when we think about and when we feel about such a person, we feel them to be unsavable. Maybe it's a group of people and we think, well, now, they're unsavable. It's all pedophiles or all homosexuals or all feminists, or all liberals. And we know that biblically there's no one that's unsavable, but we think that these people, you know, they're just beyond the pale. They're just beyond the grasp of sovereign grace, and there's really no hope for them. And maybe there are even people who we deem to be unsavable, and we also hate never use the word because that would be really unchristian, but we really don't like them and we're not interested in seeing them saved. It's like Jonah with the Ninevites. Jonah's great concern is that the Ninevites might get saved. And there are people then perhaps we think, oh, not interested at all in seeing them come to Christ. So who's the worst person you know? Well, if you had asked this question of New Testament era Christians, uh, they would have thought of tax collectors. They would have thought of Levi, the tax collector. Uh, they would have thought of not only Levi, but they would have thought of his kind. They would have thought of his group. And... Um, they were people then who were beyond the pale of God's saving grace. So then we come to this passage here. After this, verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, Jesus comes face to face with one of those people that we might think are unsavable. He comes face to face with Levi. 
And the account is set before us, and we're going to study it under three headings. The first is a poor sinner. A poor sinner. Well, that's Levi. Verse 27 says, a tax collector named Levi. Now, why does Luke mention Levi's conversion here? Well, if you look at the context, verses 17 to 26, we have that miracle, that uh, healing of the paralytic. And the great point of that passage is not that Jesus can heal, but that Jesus can forgive. The most important words that anyone could ever hear are the words that are found in verse 20. Man, your sins are forgiven. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Child, your sins are forgiven. You see, we, we relate happiness to health and wealth and getting whatever you want. And if we can get whatever we want and if we can have a boatload of money and then the health to spend it, well, uh, we'll be happy. The Bible, however, establishes an unbreakable link between happiness and forgiveness. And the psalmist said in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. If you want to be happy, your sins need to be forgiven. If you want to be happy, that that broken relationship between you and God, broken because of sin, that needs to be reconciled. You need to be reconciled to God. Your sins need to be forgiven. There's no happiness outside of that. There's no happiness without forgiveness. And Luke now, having established the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive sins, having established that, he says to us now, let me give you an example of this kind of thing. Let me tell you the story of Levi and what God did for him and what Jesus did for him and how the Lord forgave him of all of his sins. Let me tell you about Matthew, because that's Levi's other name. Well, what do we learn about this Levi? What do we learn about uh, Matthew? Well, we learn that Levi was a rich man. And we know that he was a rich man because uh, all tax collectors in those days seemed to be rich men. And there's a reason why they were rich men, which we'll get to in a minute. We also know he was a rich man because in verse 29, we're told that he gave a great feast. You couldn't give a great feast in those days unless you were pretty rich and you had the resources to have a lot of people into your home. You had a big home so that you could have a lot of people in and you had the resources to provide food for them so that they might recline at the table. So Levi was a rich man, but again, remember that that was not his great need. Having a lot of money, not his great need. Not what's going to make you happy. Not what is going to bring you Spiritual prosperity, money, doesn't solve the fundamental human problem, forgiveness. So Levi was a rich man, but then Levi was a corrupt man. Again, we're told uh, that it seemed that all tax collectors were corrupt men. Now, there were different levels of tax collectors. There was what they called 
a tax farmer. He would buy a certain area from the Romans. The Romans ruled uh, Palestine. They, they ruled Israel. So the tax farmer would buy a certain portion of air, a certain area of the land from the Romans. And he would uh, sort of own that area when it came to taxes. Then there would be the chief tax collector. And the tax farmer, he would hire a chief tax collector. And the chief tax collector, he would oversee that area on behalf of the farmer. And then the chief tax collector would hire a variety of tax collectors. And that's where Matthew comes in. They are boots on the ground. They're the ones who have dealings with people. They're the ones who get the money out of the pockets of the people. That's what Matthew was. And these people, they taxed everything. Under the Romans, these tax collectors taxed everything. With the permission and direction of the Romans, they taxed everything. And so if you were living in Israel at the time, you would have to pay taxes in order to ride on the roads or walk on the roads. You had to pay a tax to cross a bridge. You had to pay a tax to enter a town. You had to pay a tax to sail into a harbor. You had to pay taxes on your animals. You had to pay taxes on the wheels on your cart. And you had to pay a tax on the axle on your cart. And that's what they did. They taxed everything. Their taxation, their taxation system was kind of a model for the Canadian one, I suppose. They taxed everything. In addition to that, if the Romans said you, well, you had to tax 2% for this particular item or area, I, What the tax collectors were allowed to do is they were allowed to actually tax 10% and they could pocket the difference. And they just milked that system to no end. They were corrupt. There was, in, in these days, in the first century, there was an effort to try and reform the taxation system. Uh, but uh, even with that, it was corrupt to the core because the people were corrupt to the core. So Levi was a rich man, but he was a corrupt man, and he was a hated man. He was a hated man. One commentator says this, the tax gatherers were universally hated. They had entered the service of their country's conquerors. They amassed their fortunes at the expense of their country's misfortunes. They were notoriously dishonest. Not only did they fleece their own countrymen, but they also did their best to swindle the government. And they made a flourishing income by taking bribes from rich people who wished to avoid taxes which they should have paid. And you realize then that people are the same in every generation. Every country hates its tax gatherers, but the hatred of the Jews for them was doubly violent. The Jews were fanatical nationalists. What roused the Jews more than anything else was their righteous conviction that God alone was king and that to pay taxes to any mortal ruler was an infringement on God's rights and an insult to his majesty. But Jewish, by Jewish law, a tax gatherer was barred from the synagogue and he was barred from the court. Everybody hated the, Jew, the, the, the tax collectors. They were universally hated. So Levi, was, he was rich, but he was corrupt. I mean, he had power because these people really did have power. He was 
powerful, but he was also despised. He was too corrupt to enter the synagogue and too corrupt to testify in court. A poor sinner. And now he comes face to face with Jesus. Now perhaps there's a dawning of a realization that he's someone who needs to be rescued. All is not well with this rich and powerful man. And he's in need of saving. He's living and working in Capernaum, which is where Jesus, in these early days of his ministry, he had established uh, his headquarters there, his base of operations, as it were, during this Galilean ministry that was in Capernaum, right where Levi was. And maybe Levi had heard about him, and maybe Levi was listening to him. Perhaps Levi had witnessed the miracle that had just occurred, and probably that's the case. Probably he was within earshot, because we're told, after this, Jesus went out of that house, and there was Levi. So here's a poor sinner, brought face to face with Jesus. And there are two lessons to learn from it. The first is this, the truth about the gospel. The truth about the gospel. And the truth about the gospel is that God wants to be merciful to people like this. God wants to be merciful to people like Levi. God wants to be merciful to poor sinners. Look at verses 31 and 32. 31 and 32. Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And then remember Matthew's version of this. And remember what was said there in Matthew's version of this where Matthew quotes Hosea 6, 6, which says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So God wants to be merciful to poor sinners. How do you and I respond to poor sinners? How do we respond to corrupt politicians? How do we respond to corrupt businessmen? How do we respond to corrupt neighbors, to the corrupt people we rub shoulders with all the time? How do we feel about them? What's our attitude towards them? Can we say that we stand with God and say, we want mercy for them. Christians shake their fists today and say, we want justice. No, God says, I want mercy for them. I want them to know my kindness. I want them to know my grace. I want them to be rescued. God wants mercy such as these. Furthermore, Jesus came to save such as these. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, says Paul. So Jesus came to save people like this. Jesus came to save the worst of sinners. Jesus came to save the despised the corrupt.
And again, do we stand with the Father? Do we stand with the Son? Do we stand with the Spirit? In 1 Corinthians, we're told in chapter 1 that those whom God saves and brings into the church, they're not the high and the mighty, the movers and the shakers. They're the weak and the foolish. They're the dregs of society. The Father and the Son and, and the Spirit. God wants to be merciful to poor sinners. Do we, do we have the same heart? Do we have the same compassion? Oh, they're dreadful people, aren't they? But we want mercy for them, even as we received mercy. So that's the first lesson, the truth about the gospel. This is a gospel of grace, our gospel. But then also the the truth about you, and the truth about you, and the fact of the matter is that you are Levi. You are a great sinner. You deserve judgment. The story is told about G.K. Chesterton, whose Catholicism I do not endorse. I'm just quoting him because it really illustrates my point. Uh, The story is told that in the 30s, the the Times of London uh, posed the question, and they looked for answers. And the question was, what's wrong with the world today? I don't know how you'd respond to that, but what's wrong with the world today? So he responded and he wrote into the Times and, and all he wrote was this. He said, remember the question is, what's wrong with the world today? His response was, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. I'm the problem. I am the sinner. And what I'm saying to you is that when you read this account and you read about Levi... Uh, The great sinner, the righteous Pharisee says, oh, why does Jesus uh, meet and commune with tax collectors and sinners? They're all to be lumped together. They're the despised people, the people we don't want to associate with. And, And Levi's in there. But when you look at Levi, it's like looking in a mirror because you're a sinner too. You're just like him. And the result is, you see, you should run to God yourself. You should run to Jesus Christ yourself for salvation, for the kind of forgiveness that Levi found in Jesus. That's how you should respond to this. You don't sit back and you say, oh, glad he got salvation because, boy, he was a wretch. And the fact of the matter is, so are you. And you need salvation as well. And God grant that you'll run to Jesus and find life in Jesus the way he did. That's God's message to you today. Run to Christ yourself. Like Levi. Follow Christ. 
Like Levi, you need that. You need forgiveness too. Or no happiness, no heaven. And Jesus welcomes penitent sinners. And of course, if you are a Christian, you know that that was you. That was you. You were Levi. And so what do you do? How do you, you and I respond? Well, we, you know, we climb very carefully off our high horse. And we walk humbly with our God. Nothing to be proud of. Just a poor sinner like Levi. Saved by Jesus. So there you have it, a poor sinner. Now secondly, a sovereign call. A sovereign call. What you have here is an extraordinary example of sovereign grace. This passage reminds us that all things are possible with God. Just turn for a moment to Matthew 19. Uh, Matthew 19, we have a, an account of, well, the fact that all things are possible with God. Matthew 19, verses 19 to 26. And here in this passage, in Matthew 19, verses 19 to 26, you have an account of a man who loves money and lives for money. And you could take that phrase and use it to describe Levi. He lives for money because he loves money. And then you notice what we read in verse 23. Jesus said to to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what our Lord is saying there is that salvation is impossible with people. And he's not talking about uh, a gate in Jerusalem where if camels were to be able to go through, they had to get down on their knees. He's not talking about that. He's saying, take a little needle with a tiny little hole and a big, ugly camel and try and fit that camel through that. And you say, that's impossible. And he says, exactly. Salvation's impossible with people. And the disciples understand that, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? It's impossible. And Jesus says, yes, it is. But with God, all things are possible. Well, see, that passage explains what happened in our passage. Because Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. And this man who loves money and lives for money gets up and follows Jesus. How does that happen? Well, with God, all things are possible. With man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. So, God speaks, and a universe comes into being. God spoke, and ex nihilo, this universe comes about. Jesus speaks, and this dead man rises from his spiritual death and follows Jesus. There was a man by the name of James Chalmers, and he was a, he was a Scot. He was the son of a stonemason in the West Highlands of, of Scotland, and he goes to an evangelistic meeting, and he goes, oh, we often hear about this kind of thing. He went to this evangelistic meeting with no 
spiritual intent, and he went with mischievous motivations. But he goes and he hears a message on Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. Well, in the same way that follow me hits Levi and he responds, well, the spirit and the bride say, come. That just hits this man, Chalmers, and he follows Jesus Christ. He rises from his spiritual grave and he becomes a follower of Jesus. He goes to New Guinea and he works amongst the cannibals. He preaches the gospel, but he's eventually killed. You see, how does that happen? How does a man who goes to hear a message with evil intent, but he hears the message and he's saved? How does that happen? It's a sovereign call of God. How does Matthew respond and get up and follow? What's a sovereign call of God? We read in Acts 16, 14, and 15, Then the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's what happened in Philippi. It was a sovereign call. That's why Lydia became a Christian. She was called by God. What about Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 14? What's happening there? How do these bones get up and walk? Well, God instructs his prophet to say, live. And when he says, live... The power to live is given and is accompanying the command. And so the prophet says, live, and power is given so that the bones get up and live. With the command comes the power. It's a sovereign call. John eleven forty three. Jesus says to Lazarus, who is now, while well, his body is rotting in the tomb, Jesus says, Lazarus, Come out. Well, how on earth does this dead body respond to that call? How does he get up and walk out of the tomb? Well, the sovereign call of God. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And with the command comes the power. With the command to come forth comes the power to come forth. And that's what happened with Levi. Follow me. Can't do it. Follow me. Have no interest in doing it. Follow me. And with the command comes the power to follow me. It's a sovereign call. This power to to follow came to you. Because one day, the, the same command, different words, same command came to you. And you were told, believe. And you were told, repent. And, and you were told, follow me. You had no interest before that. You had no concern prior to that. But with the command came the power. With the invitation from heaven came power from heaven. And you got up. And you followed. And that's why you're here today. That's why you enjoyed singing those hymns. That's why you've been praying. That's why you're a Christian. That's why this stuff matters to you. It's because sovereign power was extended to you and you follow Jesus. Got nothing to do with any merit. Nothing to do with 
Anything virtuous or righteous in you? Sovereign grace. It's a sovereign call. So thank God then that there was a day, there was a moment, I can put it down too, a moment when sovereign grace touched and transformed and I followed. As a poor sinner here and then a sovereign call and then lastly a a useful life. A useful life. Levi was lost, and then he was found, and then he began to live a a useful life. And you can too. And if you're not a Christian, God can save you. There's always hope for you. God can save you and then turn you completely around so that heaven is your destiny. And a useful life on earth is your reality. Now, we're told in in our passage, in verse 28, that... um, Leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. Now, what exactly does it mean, leaving everything? Well, one commentator says this. He says, he knew, that is Matthew knew, Levi knew that once uh, he left everything and followed Jesus, that would be like the end of his career as a civil servant. There would be no going back to his old way of life. Yet despite all of this, Levi left everything uh, behind and followed the Lord. And certainly other disciples left everything. They left their careers. They walked away from their fishing operation, and they followed Jesus. Now, what that writer said is true, but I think we have to nuance that. We have to uh, clarify that a little bit. Because it's certainly not necessary for all who are saved to leave their careers behind. John the Baptist gave counsel to tax collectors in Luke chapter 3, And and we read this, tax collectors also came to John to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you were authorized to do. So he's saying, you can stay a tax collector, but be righteous about it. You can stay in your career, but live a righteous lifestyle, including what you do for work. That's what's required of a Christian. So go back and, and be righteous in Uh, the career that uh, God has chosen for you. And that's the counsel that John Newton gave to William Wilberforce. Wilberforce thought, well, I'm a politician. (laughs) Politics is rife with corruption. I should now, as a Christian, if I'm going to be righteous, I need to get out of politics. And Newton said, well, no, no. Go back and live righteously as a politician. And that, as you well know, I'm sure, uh, is what Wilberforce did. Now, Levi had to leave his profession because he was called to be an apostle. That's a full-time job. But Christians always don't have to do that. What they have to do is to go back and live righteously. Go back and live godly. Go back and live a useful life. Well, God can use a Matthew and God can use you. And the Lord used Levi. The Lord used him as a witness. The Lord used him as a witness. Look at verse 29. Levi made a a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So this is what Levi must have said to himself. He said, well, the Lord saved me, and the Lord's forgiven me. 
And so I must bring others to meet this Jesus who has rescued me from my sin. I must go and I must invite my friends in the tax collecting business and show them Jesus. Show them the one who saved me from my sins. I must go and introduce my family to Jesus. I must let as many people as possible know about this Jesus who means now so much to me. So Levi would have understood how those lepers felt in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 7. They are under siege from the Syrians in the city, and they're starving to death. And the lepers say, let's just go amongst the Syrians and take our chances with them. Maybe they'll be merciful and give us some food. When they get out there, outside the city, and they find, oh, the Syrians have gone, miracle of God. They left their food fabulous, let's indulge. And then they think to themselves, wait a minute, it's wrong for us to just eat this food when inside our people are starving in the city. We must go and tell them. So Levi's like that. He understands that. He says, God has saved me. Jesus has forgiven me. They're all starving, all my tax-collecting buddies. I need to tell them. I need to see them rescued as well. Here is the Savior of my soul. God grant that he be the Savior of their souls. Matthew understood that. And surely any Christian, any true Christian, feels the same way. Bishop Ryle says, Oh, these are stinging words. There is no grace in the man who cares nothing about the salvation of his fellow men. The soul that has been truly called of God will earnestly desire that others may experience the same calling. A converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. There's there's no grace in the man who cares nothing for the salvation of his fellow men. If you don't care about the salvation of others, Ryle says, you're just not a Christian. This is an implication that must touch us. Matthew is 100% right. I have to invite the others. So God used him as a witness. And then God used him as a writer. God used him as a writer. We don't hear Matthew speak any words in the New Testament. But we have a book. We have the Gospel of Matthew or Levi. He would answer to both. Now, Matthew, we're told, was a tax collector. So he's kind of, he has accountant skills. And in the wisdom of God, God used those skills that he brought to his job. God used it in his ministry. One commentator says about the book of Matthew, not Luke now, but about the book of Matthew, which Levi wrote. One commentator says, it is the product of an astonishingly ordered mind. I don't know if you have an astonishingly ordered mind. I had a friend once who, we were moving him, and he had a truck, and they... they they stacked stuff on the truck, you know, this, and it was just, imagine the, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies in there? Well, it, it looked like that, and things were tied on with rope and everything, and, 
And a friend of, another friend of mine and I, we were standing there looking at this, and, and this, he thought, just one bump and it all goes, you know? And my friend said, look at that, he says. He says, I, and see, the, the fellow who was moving, his name was Kit, and, and my friend says, well, look at that. He says, I, he says, that, I think, is a picture for us of the inside of Kit's mind. Okay. <laughs> Not an orderly mind. And that was him. It was just chaotic in that head. Levi is different. And you can see it in his book and the way he orders things. Well, what's happened? Well, God is using his skills that he brought to his job. God's using that in terms of his ministry. Well, God can do that with us. God does that with us. And we want to pray that God will enable us to use our talents, which we've had even before we were converted, and then also gifts that are given to us when we become Christians, that we use these for the glory of God and for the growth of the church. So God made of Levi this poor sinner, this despised tax collector. God makes him a useful servant in his kingdom and a vibrant witness in the world. God can do that with us. And frankly, God is doing that with us. And how we th- should be thankful for that grace and that privilege. Well, a poor sinner and a sovereign call and a useful life. And then now a few implications. First of all, he's a man of humility. <clears throat> Levi is a man of humility. We read in verse 27 that Luke refers to him as Levi. Now, Levi, that may have been his family name. And if it's his family name, then it suggests that he may be from a priestly line. And if you're from a priestly line, that's very prestigious in Israel. So here's a hint then that that Levi, uh, being called Levi here, speaks to his privilege. But when Matthew gives his account, he refers to himself as, as Matthew. He doesn't say Levi. So a hint, perhaps, of humility. But then you think about this. In Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13, we have um, Matthew's account of his conversion. But later on in chapter 10, you have the list of the apostles. You have the same list in Mark 3 and then in Luke 6. Now, when, when Matthew gives the list of the apostles, he says, oh, there was Peter and, and there was John, and there's Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, and so on. Now, when Luke and Mark give the list, they say, well, there was Peter and there was John and there was Matthew and there was... It's only Matthew that says there was Peter and there was John and there was Matthew the tax collector and so on. Interesting. It's like saying saying, there was Peter and there was John and there was Matthew the swindler and then there was Peter, there was John, there was Matthew the cheat. There was Peter and there was John and there was was Matthew the traitor. This fellow doesn't, doesn't sit on a high horse. He's a man of humility. Listen to Paul. Paul speaks about himself. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer. 
a transgressor, a persecutor. That's what I was. Oh, that God might give us that kind of humility. If you have to speak about yourself, probably best not to speak about yourself, but if you have to speak about yourself, do so with humility. There's a humble man, this Levi. So a man of humility, a gospel of grace. Somebody has said that all other religions spell do, D-O. Christianity alone spells D-O-N-E, done. Because you look at what happened here. Jesus comes along. He's at the table. Follow me. He gets up and he follows Jesus. He's a Christian. He's a Christian. See, where's the pilgrimage? Where's the giving of money? Where's the reforming of my life so that I can earn heaven? None of that. It's, It's a moment. It's a miraculous transformation. It's a soul brought from the domain of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. He accomplishes nothing. He fulfills nothing. He he works at nothing. He is simply saved by grace alone. That's why I read Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 to begin the service. Because that is this. And that explains you. Saved by grace. So a man of humility and a gospel of grace and a church of peace, a church in which there is peace. What you have now with the followers of Jesus and amongst these these 12 apostles, you have Matthew, who's a traitor, and you have a fellow who's called Simon the Zealot, who is not, he's a patriot. So you have Matthew the traitor, because he's working for the enemy, and Simon the Zealot, who's trying to overthrow the enemy. You have Matthew the traitor and Simon the zealot. And what do zealots do? Well, zealots kill traitors. And that's not a metaphor. That's literal. Zealots literally kill traitors. Now, let's put you in the same church. Let's put you in the same band of followers of Jesus. That's what God does. And it works in the church. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. It's in the church And in the church alone, that people of such disparate and diverse backgrounds can live and work together in harmony and in peace. It doesn't always happen. And sometimes Christians cannibalize each other. But it doesn't have to be that way. And there can be, and there ought to be, And it is a real, live possibility that there be peace and harmony amongst the people of God. And we've had a great measure of that. Thank God for that. 
Long may it continue. And let us always be vigilant to preserve that unity and let us always be prayerful that that unity be preserved. But there can be within the church of Christ people from all kinds of different backgrounds working in peace and harmony because we have the same cause and we follow the same Lord. We serve the same Christ. So we can, despite our backgrounds, unite in Him and follow the church of peace. And then a perspective of hope. A perspective of hope. We never give up on anyone. We never write people off. We never say he's too far gone. I had a reputation amongst the Christians I knew before I was converted. And, uh, and then I, w- I was saved. And I went to school the next day and I told these Christians that I was saved. And they said, well... Don't believe it. I mean, they, 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 they just didn't believe it. And you understand that. I'm an, I understand that. But we shouldn't. We shouldn't. And sometimes we even witness to people and think, it's not going to happen. Uh, we shouldn't. Don't give up on anyone. I believe there's, there's a credible profession from Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, the cannibalizing serial killer. I believe we'll see him in heaven. David Berkowitz was called the son of Sam and he killed, what is it, six people and destroyed many lives. This is what he wrote. He says, I was involved in the occult and got burned. I became a cruel killer and threw away my life as well as destroying the lives of others. Now I have discovered that Christ is my answer and my hope. He broke the chains of sin and self-will which had bound me. He has turned me from a path leading to eternal damnation in the lake of fire to the blessed assurance of eternal life in heaven. God has miraculously transformed Son of Sam into Son of Hope. You can go to his website. You can hear his testimony. He's been in prison now for, oh, 30, 40 years and maintains through all of this a shining testimony of God's grace? Serial killer? Yeah, you, you don't give up on people. And if God can save a Levi, He can save you, He can save me, He can save those people you're tempted to give up on. But uh, a perspective of hope. And so we, we thank God then for sovereign grace, We thank God for the touch of mercy. It moves us to praise God for what he's done in our lives. And it stirs hope within us, what he can do in the lives of others, what he can do in your life. You need forgiveness. God is able to save you. And come to Christ then, before the hour is done, before the day is through. And like Levi, follow Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we pray that you'll bless your word to saints and sinners alike. That you'll save those who need saving. And you'll sanctify us so that we might more and more reflect the beauty of Christ 
as we glory in the grace of Christ. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.